And welcome to Club Night of the Institute of Inventors and Innovators, only on SA Commuter Radio's Let's Invent channel. We welcome Nancy Zwiers, who's going to be talking to us a little bit about how to market an invention. Well, I'm very happy to be here, Celeste. Thank you for inviting me to speak to the South Africa Inventors Club. I didn't know that such an organization existed, so I'm really happy that um, people around the world are uh, focusing on innovation and invention. Uh, Just a quick thing about myself, and then we're going to get right into the material that really, I think, matters today. Um, I am a 30-year-plus veteran of the um, toy and children's entertainment industry. Uh, Prior to that, I worked in uh, other corporate uh, brand management positions. Uh, My toy background includes Mattel. I ran worldwide marketing for Barbie and the girls division. Um, I had my own company, Philosophy, for 16 years. And then I returned to the corporate life and was chief marketing uh, officer of Spin Master Toys based out of Toronto. During my time In corporate America, I sat on the the receiving end of the table of inventor submissions. And uh, during my time uh, running my own company, uh, I began a chapter of invention uh, about eight years into the company when I felt that girls' toys were getting short shrift by the largely male um, talent pool in the inventor community. And so I have firsthand experience with invention, both in uh, receiving submissions and evaluating them, as well as presenting and pitching. I've also um, done negotiated deals. I've negotiated deals with big companies like Mattel, Bandai, Spin Master, et cetera. So uh, my goal today is to share as much as I can that can help you be successful in your uh, inventions. Um, And just one last note, I retired from my corporate career in 2019, and so now what I spend my time doing is executive coaching, mentoring, and and, uh, volunteering, um, you know, lessons learned in life through written uh, columns and and articles, as well as through uh, talking to different groups on a volunteer basis. So I'm very happy to be here. And um, I'd like to uh, just go ahead and dive in and, and start out by saying, well, what is marketing? What is a ma- why marketing mindset for inventors? Well, I define marketing as really understanding and meeting consumer needs. Understanding and meeting consumer needs. So who's the consumer in this story? Well, I think you have two consumers to be thinking about. Uh, One is the end consumer of your invention. You're thinking about them as you put, as you define and refine your invention because you want it to be as, you know, wonderful as possible for them. But also um, the company that you're pitching to, you could see as a consumer of your invention. So um, in terms of creating a successful invention, and being able to effectively license it, that requires a marketing mindset. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. So when you're marketing your invention to a company, the way the company 
is actually evaluating it, is they're evaluating it in light of your invention's marketability. Your invention's marketability is driven by the quality of the the product benefits, of course, but there's also other aspects uh, to that invention that play into that assessment about the level of marketability. The key to to a marketing mindset is the consumer is king. You've got two consumers you're thinking about, and they're king. So um, I already talked about uh, understanding and meeting consumer needs. So what makes an invention marketable? So in terms of, let's talk about selling your invention and, and pitching it. Um, the first quality I want to um, talk about is breakthrough quality. Does your invention have breakthrough quality? We live in a very, very busy society with things constantly coming at us from all directions, everyone vying for our attention. There's a sea of sameness out there in a lot of respects. And so in order to really be marketable, you have to have that ability to break through. So let's think about what what creates some breakthrough quality. Well, it might be a very unique aesthetic so that the first time you see something, it's like, wow, I've never seen that before. I remember the first time I saw Toy Story, the uh, first uh, full-length computer-generated animation uh, feature film, And I had never seen anything like it. It was mesmerizing. And of course, it was a huge hit. So think about the category that your invention will live in and ask yourself, do I have stopping power grab attention? Um, Another aspect of a breakthrough is that maybe it has a high impact feature set, something that can be demonstrated. When you uh, think about a lot of inventions that ended up on direct to uh, to consumer TV, DRTV, they always have amazing features that they, you know, that they romance visually uh, on their commercials. So, you know, if you, if your invention does involve features, look for things that can be visualized as much as possible, or even if it's, you know, uses another sense, maybe create a visual cue so that you can really create that visual connection. Um, In the toy industry, we talk about having a concept that's easy enough to uh, explain in 15 seconds. The material that I'm going through now is really applicable beyond toys. But um, uh, when you think about how much attention people have to give to a new message, they don't give a lot of time. So you need to be able to explain the benefit and why someone should want your, your product in in a very short period of time. And um, finally, uh, you know, besides like messaging that, you know, in a marketing sense, what is the packaging uh, going to look like? How are you going to create stopping power with a packaging concept? So when you think about um, enhancing someone's perception of the marketability of your invention, which is their key concern, they want to be, have something that's com, that consumers will want and that will be commercially successful. Uh, breakthrough quality is super, super important. Let's move on. The next thing we talk about is a home. 
Does it have a home in the company? Um, in the realm of toys, um, there's always a constant flow of new brands being launched. But the real win for companies is if they can keep an existing brand strong and growing. I know this firsthand from my experience on Barbie. I ran uh, the marketing group uh, for Barbie for five years. And um, Barbie was Mattel's most important brand. And whenever there was a girl's toy concept that came in the door, the first thing people in the inventor submissions department would ask is, could this fit within Barbie? And then the second question was, could this fit in with another brand that was strong and, um, and existing? So uh, the reason why um, companies look for a home that, that is already existing in their portfolio for a new product is understandably, it's a much lower risk proposition. Anytime you launch something brand new, it's high risk, high reward. Could be great, but it could have fall flat on its face. Whereas line extensions to existing brands are much more likely to succeed. Maybe not at the same incredible level of some big breakthrough new launch, but, but it has a home that gives it support and, and enables it to succeed. Um, some of the reasons why people want to put a, a, a brand new product invention into an existing brand is that the retail buyers who would be uh, purchasing it feel like it's less risky. The consumer who is looking for something, they're familiar with the brand, it becomes a less risky purchase decision for them. Um, there's... It, if you go into an existing brand, you can um, live within a section at, at retail that's more than just one facing of one product. You, you command attention by billboarding the brand at retail with multiple SKUs, et cetera. And so um, the, these are all reasons to consider whether the company that you're uh, looking to license your invention to Nancy, um, if I can just interrupt you a second. I know that SKU is a retail term, S-K-U. What does it stand for again, please? It stands for stop, stop, <laughs> Stock Keeping Unit. And every uh, SKU in the retail landscape has its own UPC code, universal product code, um, that allows it to be track through the you know supply chain of retail. And so any anything that needs to be tracked is its own SKU. Thank you. Okay. And thank you for um, interrupting me with that question because I'm welcoming questions as they come, as they arise. And then we'll see if we have some time for additional questions at the end. And I even uh, talked to Celeste yesterday and said, if we don't really have time to get into uh, licensing negotiation considerations on this conversation, that we can always, you know, schedule something early spring uh, next year. So you know, we'll, we'll have some time to really uh, share, you know, across a range of topics. Okay, so moving, uh, any other questions before I move on? Okay, so, um, does your invention have a clear consumer target? This is job one of a marketer, understanding who is your consumer. 
And what I find in my experience of uh, advising, coaching, and mentoring entrepreneurs is that many times they punt on target consumer. Oh, this is good. You know, if it's a toy, this is good for kids ages three to 93, no, three to 103. Or if it's a product targeted and they're not in the toy industry, but let's just say it's targeted to uh, adult women. It's like, oh, this is for women. You know, all adult women would love this. Well, here's the problem with this thinking of thinking that it's a, it's a, a misguided notion to think the broader your target definition, the bigger your business. Um, having a more constrained target audience allows you to zero in on the specific needs of that segment of the larger population with the product benefits and the way you talk about them. But it also... Um, is a little bit more manageable in terms of marketing resources. You need a lot of marketing resources to, to, to uh, speak to everybody. But if you're saying, oh, we're, we're going after, I'm making this up, we're going after college, you know, female college students, um, then you, all of a sudden your marketing um, uh, resources are focused Concentration of resources to achieve a competitive advantage is my favorite definition of, um, of uh, strategy. And so um, really make sure you're clear on your consumer target. And I often tell people, I do a lot of strategic facilitation and we do an exercise devoted to defining the different segments that we could go after and how much effort we wanna put against those segments. And what I tell people is that when you define a target audience, it's not like you're saying anyone outside of that definition is not welcome and they cannot buy the product. No, they can self-select in. But what you're doing is you're focusing your resources, both the product benefits that you're building into your invention, as well as the marketing plan that's going to let people know about this product, all of that. Um, is should be focused and targeted. And then everyone else is welcome to come, uh, come along. Yes, Celeste. Um, Nancy, we, we, we've had um, discussions before from well-known speakers who've suggested that don't make your market so narrow that it's too niche. So would see what you're saying and, you know, too broad and too niche, you need to find a, a good balance so that you are including a good consumer market that you are clearly identifying, but it's not so narrow that you can say, not exactly to say you, you, you can't come in, but it's just um, so narrowly targeted that, that you don't use the sales maybe that you yeah. put. That's, that's actually, uh, that's right. And in fact, we're going to get to uh, a point um, next that is going to really speak to how to ensure that your um, product has a meaningful benefit to enough people that it will resonate and be a commercial success. Nobody wants to you know, go through the process and you know, the hardship of inventing, but more importantly, selling successfully licensing your invention 
for, you know, something that doesn't really create some critical mass of order of magnitude. So uh, well put, Celeste, good point. Um, but, you know, my issue is that I see the opposite problem oftentimes that people think that, you know, there are products for everyone and it gets watered down. A good example of this is um, in the toy space. And again, I draw a lot of examples from toys, but we'll talk in a moment about why, you know, these lessons really apply to, you know, consumers of all ages. But um, this idea that, um, oh gosh, I lost my train of thought. All right, well, let's move on. Um, so uh, um, I'm going to just go ahead and go to the next point. And this is uh, what I mentioned, Celeste, that I was going to get to. Core, a core play pattern. Now, I use this term play pattern because that's the, the term that we use in toys, but I'd like you to think about this a little bit differently so that we can apply these concepts to all people, okay? I like to say that adulthood is a thin veneer over the inner child of us all. And the thing about marketing to kids is you learn that kids are transparent about their emotional responses to things. And you can't ask kids, why do you want this? You can't ask kids to explain. They just choose. They don't have a rational explanation. You say, why do you like this? Well, it's fun. Why do you like it? Oh, it's nice. But you basically interpret, you have to infer what's important to children by their choices. Now, I had the advantage in the 90s of uh, running worldwide marketing for Barbie, and we sold 125 million units every year, okay, 125 million units. That was kind of like big data before there was big data, <laughs> at least in the toy industry. And so I was able to uh, see patterns emerge. And what was remarkable is that these patterns of kids' choices of what they wanted to play with were um, the same across geography, across time, across culture. And it was startling. Um, how could this be? And it really gave rise to the hypothesis that um, the play drive in children is actually a biological drive. It's at the biological level. And that you know, um, caused me to embark on a lifelong learning process of really understanding the concept of children and play through the lens of a neuroevolutionary perspective. And most people who are in the business of persuading consumers understand that all decision-making is emotional. We might have rational explanations. Our cognitive side of our brain will make up an explanation for why we want something. But the emotional yes happens before the cognitive explanation. So I've had the privilege of really understanding emotionally driven um, um, desires on the part of children. And what I've learned over the course of decades is that these same emotional drivers are um, operative in adults. 
They're just a little bit more hidden by the words that adults say and speak. So for example, the little girls that grew up with Barbie loving fashion, they love to, you know, they love to, you know, look great as an adult woman. They, they maybe shop more than, than other uh, women. Uh, the little boys that play with Hot Wheels, maybe they love, you know, uh, cars and drag races and NASCAR and Formula One, et cetera. You know, so the, these emotional um, uh, triggers really stay with us for a lifetime. Okay. So here's the thing um, I speak about play as anything that is intrinsically motivating. I have no, you know, like it doesn't require external rewards to have me want it. It's intrinsically motivating in and of itself. I value it for its own sake. Okay. And so uh, what I want to do is talk to you a little bit about a very high level, 30,000 foot level explanation of play patterns. And um, you'll see that I have several age groups to talk about. Okay, so um, I don't really wanna uh, go into detail with zero to two and three to seven. We're gonna, we're gonna spend most of our time talking about eight to 12 plus. And I say 12 plus because this is true throughout our lives. So this, um, this, is, this play theory is a model. Any model simplifies reality. It's not, you know, it doesn't, um, it doesn't capture all the nuances. Of reality. And also it, um, it really seeks to um, uh, help people understand something um, in a way, you know, they sim you simplify it so you can understand it. But a good model needs to both explain reality and predict reality. And so this model I put up against, you know, 30 plus years of toy experience and say, yep, this is the way it works. This is shown the, the empirical feedback loop of the marketplace, you know, shows that this model is uh, valuable. So there's, you know, um, there's this concept that as things appear in evolution, you know, like uh, the first thing that appeared in evolution, the, the brains were created to help us move in our environment. So um, that is the most foundational aspect of our brains. And so we talk about the, we, we use this, um, this very simplified model of the reptilian brain. And specifically, it's, it's really working the sensory motor systems, very bodily, very embodied. And um, then we move on to the limbic mammalian brain. And the limbic center is the socio-emotional system. This is where emotions are, uh, arise in our brains. And then uh, later in evolution and later in our um, growing up, uh, we develop the higher order cognitive system. We know that the cognitive system doesn't really kick in in, in, in really strong ways until about age uh, eight, and, it, and brain development continues through um, age 25, 24, 25. 
there is new evidence that the brain remains plastic and can change, but these are very fundamental developmental stages, both in evolution and then paralleling the sequence in evolution is how it shows up in terms of what's happening in us as individuals. And so the biological empowerment that happens in zero to two, structuring knowledge of the physical world. I want to experience the physical world with all of my five senses. Uh, in, in the biological empowerment in these, what I call the magical thinking years is cultivating the ability of the brain to simulate images, storytelling, and gender identification. And then beyond that, those two periods, this idea of really constructing and nurturing my social identity. That is how, what I am driven to do. I am I am defining who I am in the world. I'm, and I'm looking for that internal integrity of saying like who I, who I think I am in the world is how I show up in the world with my uh, choices and my behavior. And then um, I talk about the inner play drive, um, experiencing the world through uh, five senses and movement, playing out fantasies that idealize gender-based traits And then finally, trying on social identities and expressing one's individuality. These interplay drives show up very clearly in the choices that kids make at different ages. I didn't make these up. I just interpreted the feedback loop of the marketplace. And then married it up with some scientific underpinnings. So let's just talk for a moment about core play patterns. And I'd like to invite you to think about how these play patterns play out or show up, show up in people of all ages. Okay. So the first one and the most fundamental is exploration and discovery. The reason why we have a biological drive to play is it aids in our survival. So you can see how exploration and discovery would be a very important action that would aid in our survival. Well, we spend a lifetime exploring and discovering new things. So let's talk about this from an adult perspective, because um, I think that that has the broadest um, you know, applicability uh, to this group. Um, When I think about exploration and discovery, I love to travel. I travel a lot. That is my favorite form of exploration and discovery. I love reading mysteries and thrillers. Oh my gosh, that, you know, anticipation and surprise that, um, that, that's that, that dopamine rush that I get when I discover, when I figure out who the bad guy is, and then I wait and see if I'm right. Um, there's all kinds, you know, every, anytime I read a book, it doesn't even have to be a thriller. If I read, you know, I'm reading a book, positive psychology and coaching right now, I'm exploring and discovering new principles. This is by one, um, you know, scientist, this is called the seeking system. It is the quest for everything. And a couple of things that really uh, are hallmarks of this is are that um, that you 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 ask what's new, what's next, 
And so this, it's a very strong drive that we have. Closely parallel, and, and by the way, that's a gender neutral play drive. We all have that and it's really powerful and very foundational exploration and discovery. The next one is challenge and mastery. We're driven to take on new challenges and to master them. From the time that I'm moving my limbs as a tiny, tiny little infant to the time that I'm learning to walk, learning to pick up my little Cheerio, you know, all through life, um, challenge and mastery is a huge driver. You know, we see the huge increase in gaming among adults, you know, video gaming, computer gaming, esports, apps. You know, the gaming, gamification is driven by the consumer's need for challenge and mastery, okay? And so how can you um, think about challenge and mastery in terms of your own product? Um, and then the third thing is uh, imitation. You know, we, 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 we think it's so cute, imitation role play with um, little, little toddlers. They, you know, pretend to sh- uh, push the shopping cart or feed the baby, um, et cetera. And then uh, in the magical thinking years when you're really, you know, developing your gender identity and you're living in this fantastical world, you're, um, you're uh, imitating um, uh, fantasy characters that embody the quintessential character traits that our, 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 our you know, species value in the genders. And, um, and then with uh, imitation uh, beyond that magical thinking years, it's really about peers and culture. We want to fit in. We want to, you know, we're always looking at what's, you know, what's going on and how do I fit in with this? And you, you, you walk into a room and if everyone, well, I'm going to speak about the pandemic. If I walk into a room and everyone's wearing a mask, I'm wearing a mask. I walk into a room, no one's wearing a mask. I think twice about putting on my mask. So it's just a very natural, unconscious thing we do is to imitate, you know, those around us that we respect or admire. So um, this idea of imitation really comes into play when you're um, thinking about your product, because it's it's in in essence, it's really visual. And so you want to show, don't tell. And um, so that's an important quality there. So just real quickly, I do want to talk about these idea of gender empowerment fantasies. Uh, this is a controversial topic in today's day and age because so many people um, who really are beginning to understand as scientists are, are helping us understand that gender is on a continuum. It's not binary, boy, girl. However, most um, uh People that show up physically as boys have a have a male gender identity, and most people that show up as female have a feminine gender identity. Okay, and so we would say that roughly ninety percent of uh, of a gender uh, or of a physical sex, rather ninety percent of a physical sex, has the the typical corresponding gender identity. So while, you know, so, so there, was, there were boys that played with Barbie, but most of the people playing with Barbie were girls. So let's just talk about this. 
the, the qualities that, you know, over the span of Homo sapiens, 200,000 years, and even prior to that with primates, 55 million years ago, um, the qualities that have been really important in males are physical empowerment qualities like strength, size, speed, skill. Um, those hunters in the hunter-gatherer society really benefited from those physical qualities. So we can't help at this point in time when even though physical qualities aren't the key factor for success in today's world, we still just subconsciously, unconsciously value those things in males. And then think about in hunter-gatherer societies um, that have existed over the last 200,000 years, um, what, the, um, what the role of women were. It is a human universal that there was a, there was a division of labor among the genders. A human universal means it shows up in all known cultures without exception. So uh, women were the uh, caregivers for the children and women tended the fire and collaborated and cooperated, you know, to create a safe space for the tribe to exist. Um, and so this nurturing empowerment and social empowerment are really um, value, highly valued in women. Um, beyond that, you know, we talk about, you know, evolution, survival of the species involves reproduction. And, you know, throughout eons, beauty was an indicator of health. And so um, beauty was really a part and parcel of how, um, uh, you, you know, mates were selected. So it's really interesting that these are the play patterns that drive much play of children between the ages of three and seven. And again, I want to acknowledge that there are outliers that, you know, have a, a gender identity that doesn't match their physical sex. And that's, that's true and, and good. But that doesn't change the fact that subconsciously, unconsciously, we're hardwired to value certain things. And it's very difficult to, you know, step out of that subconscious bias that we have. So when you think about your invention and you think about who it's for, um, you know, some, in, some products are gender neutral. So think about, okay, you know, how can I build exploration and discovery into the product, into the marketing, the marketability of it? How can I build challenge and mastery? Maybe there's different levels that the consumer can achieve in terms of expertise um, one thing we know about video games is different levels make it addictive. So you get to level one and you're like, all right, you got your, you get your dopamine rush of success, mastery, but there's another challenge around the corner. It's called level two. I got to dig in and keep on going. And so that, um, that kind of, you know, aspect is, it can be really valuable. So, um, I want to stop and pause and um, give you a little time and space, maybe two minutes, just to think about how could you use some of these biologically driven 
play patterns, we'll call them intrinsic motivations that are powerful and drive our emotional uh, reactions to anything. How can you tap into some of this in your product? Let's just take a moment and let's just reflect. This is going to be the boring part of the podcast. <laughs> Natty, I just want to make a comment uh, within your, 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 your exercise now. Um, I'm not an inventor, which I'm sorry about at the moment, but also I'm not an inventor of toys. But nevertheless, your philosophy play theory and the manner in which you've spread it out like this, it just shows how important it is to understand um, the market that you're going to be inventing for and then to target it. Or I don't know which one comes first. You have to target your market and think, okay, I'm going to invent for young children, babies, not to two years, and then invent. Or otherwise, then you find out who I'm going to invent first and then think, oh, not to two-year-olds need this and therefore that. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just amazed at the depth of this knowledge and how useful just your talk has been in terms of my thinking about the toys I had as a kid and, and, and how they, um, they did exactly this. You know, we wanted to take things apart when we were kids and then we wanted to build them up together again. And then we wanted to explore and then we wanted to find out more. And then we wanted level two, level three, level four. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it, it's, 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 as you said, it's a universal message. Yeah. So again, we adults communicate from our cognitive center, our thinking center, but we behave through our emotional center. And choosing a product is behavioral and it's emotionally driven. Uh, advertising agencies say all decision-making is emotional. So um, when you think about these um, biological drives that are um, um, driven by, you know, embodied aspects and emotional aspects, it, it requires us to step away from the cognitive, which is less powerful, and move into bodily considerations and emotional considerations. And, you know, I will say that one of the uh, um, out, outcomes of my, you know, intense research and learning about this is I've come to respect the wisdom of the body profoundly. And one of the keys to my success in uh, my career is that I nurtured my gut. I, and, and one of my, and, and I also use this as a guide to how I live my life. If I feel this internal, yes, that means I move towards something. If I feel some internal uh, resistance, I, I say, wait a second, let me look at this. This might not be for me. 
So as you're working on your product, nurture your gut. What excites you? If it excites you, it can excite someone else. We used to say in the toy industry, if we could get the the adult retail buyers excited about something, we have something. If if the adult buyers, retail buyers are looking at something and evaluating it cognitively, we've already lost. We've already lost. So when you're pitching your product, if you're not exciting the people you're pitching to, if you're not giving them this sense of possibility, I want that. Um, You're not going to license it. Okay. So um, I could talk about this for days, but we don't have days. So let's move on. Uh, One of the keys to uh, my success in invention was, you know, I had my marketing mindset on and I would come up with a strong name for my invention. And in many cases, I would uh, go on to the U.S. um, site, USPTO.gov. I know you guys have a similar, uh, you know, uh, structure organization in South Africa. Um, And I would would file for, I I had my, uh, uh, one of my employees who was really my business manager. I had her learn how to um, apply for a trademark on USPTO. Um, and uh, so for $300, I could get a name protected. And so uh, I didn't always do that, but I did that oftentimes because I put a lot of weight into a strong name and I wanted it to be part of the IP I was licensing. And so if I have it trademarked, I own the IP. And so a lot of times in inventions, especially in toys, companies will license features. But if I have a strong name, anything that goes under that name, the brand, I get a piece of, okay? So for example, Teeny Papini was my first invention it was a, it's a plush uh, animal um, in, that, that kind of was a mashup for, um, for uh, uh, fashion doll play with plush. There's long combable hair. There were fashions. It, we used a pony body for the, for the pet so that it had long legs like fashion dolls. And the name Teeny Papini was kind of whimsical and, and, and um, it, uh, it, the, the company um, ended up, you know, launching the brand under that name. Um, I uh, developed a line of uh, nurturing bird birds for girls and pitched it to Mattel. I named it Tweethearts. And um, in the end, uh, Mattel wanted that name Tweethearts, uh, but they didn't really like the, the invention per se, they wanted to do something different. So they gave me an inspiration royalty. I got an inspiration royalty just because of the idea of uh, birds and, 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 and then this highly untrend name of Tweethearts. So you don't have to li- uh, license it if you don't you know, have the resources to do so. And by the way, I don't think it makes sense to go through attorneys because it gets really expensive and you don't need to. 
But the least you can do is go on your trademark site and see if the name appears to be available. Put a name on your, on your invention that uh, appears to be available for trademarking, even if you decide not to do that, okay? And you define that as part of the IP that you're licensing, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you can. And again, the tra- you know, actually filing for the trademark gives you leverage, okay? On trend, uh, think about why having something be on trend could be important. Well, first of all, it's an inclination that what you're working on is going to, you know, have some receptivity in the marketplace because, you know, that trend has been proven out. Um, But beyond that, think about what it does for risk mitigation. What I've seen is that companies jump on ideas that are on trend because they know that they are going to ride the rocket. They're not starting from ground zero. They're jumping on a rocket that's moving and riding with it. They don't have to start from the ground up to generate demand. The retail buyers are are looking for things that are on trend. So if there's a way, you know, maybe your product is is timeless, but if there's a way to create an on-trend dimension to it, like I did with my little nurturing birds with the name and using tweet, which was in the zeitgeist, you know, there's ways to incorporate things that are on trend. Maybe it's a color palette that seems to be on trend. Maybe it's a material that seems to be on trend. Uh, Maybe it's themed. And that's, you know, a theme that's emerging in pop culture. But really go that extra mile beyond the functionality of what you're inventing and saying, how can I tap into the power of trend and the risk mitigation aspect of trend so that everyone can more easily get on board? And remember what we said about imitation. You know, trends have a self-perpetuating aspect to it because of our innate desire to imitate what we see. Okay, when I, I came from staid uh, consumer packaged goods, Procter & Gamble and Heinz Pet Products, and, and then I joined Mattel and I saw that all my, you know, my business suits had skirts below my knee and everyone I saw around me at Mattel in this hip, fashion-y, fast-paced, creative environment, they all had skirts above their knees. Guess what I did? I got a seamstress to hem all my skirts so that I could be fit in. That's just like a silly example, but, you know, it's just a really powerful drive that we have. So these are key considerations for, uh, I don't think I have a, a last one. Oh, yeah, legs. Sorry, one last one. Legs. Um, what this means is that, you know, it's really hard to get things launched, Uh I, I, I use, you know, Celeste talks about this, uh, about, you know, the you know, most important thing is the beginning. My way of talking about it is this metaphor that I heard that 90% of the fuel it takes to get to the moon is used during liftoff, right? So that takes a lot of energy. So if you can kind of build in some natural line extensions to how the company can give this idea legs 
so that they can amortize all that effort it takes to launch something new and, and continue to benefit from it over time through line extensions. So when they're look, when a company's looking at a um, at a uh, invention, they're saying, oh, "Okay, how can I line extend this in year two? How can I line extend this in year three? So the, the term we use is, "Does it have legs? Can it keep going in some way, shape, or form?" A constant stream of newness is really important in um, emotion and fashion driven businesses, and so um, you've got to. Um, constantly come up with new versions of what you already succeeded with. You can't just stick with the same old thing. New, what's new, what's next, what's new, what's next. We talk about a constant stream of newness in toys. It's less important in some other categories, but it still is important. In packaged goods, new and improved is only, the word new is only behind free in the power it has with the consumer. Okay, so I want to pause. Wait, let me go back here. And I'm about, let's see, where, where are we on time? Oh, we're out of time. So um, I think Nancy, I'm going to... Nancy, we could go on all evening. So if you could bear another 15 minutes, we would like that. I can't, actually, because I'm going, I'm going to my deep water aerobics class. Okay, you said um, so already. No problem. I think I think this is good because this this latter part I'm talking I'm going to be talking about collaborative invention how you can partner to be more successful and and just real quickly share the work share the risk share the reward that will go well with part two of this talk that we um, that we schedule for early next year I'm going to talk about collaborative invention I'm going to tell you some stories that illustrate how sometimes it takes a team. And, and, you know, a, a smaller share of something is better than 100% of nothing. And, um, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, some, you know, deal making considerations for inventors. So that's my little, uh, my, my little commercial for what's coming down the road that Celeste and I will kind of cook up and uh, bring to you uh, in a little bit. I apologize that I've been so verbose that we don't have time for some general Q&A, but what I want to say is if, Celeste, if you want to um, collect some questions and provide them to me, we can do a quick little recorded Zoom and I can answer some questions in a, um, in a after-the-fact Q&A. I do, you know, feel badly that I um, I didn't leave time for some Q and A. Does that does that sound good? Very, very nice, thank you. Because I do know that we've got a couple of important questions that are timely. You know, we can wait until spring, yes, but we we actually would like the answers sooner. And when I say we, not me, but we, um, I've had a couple of people phone me say, "Can I ask you this? Can I ask you that?" So okay. uh, yes, okay. it would be very nice and useful. Thank you. Okay. Okay. So um, what I'd love to do real quick is to hear for some people about like what piece of what I talked about made the biggest impact on you? What value did you create for yourself out of the time you spent with me today? So um, Celeste, can you kind of, uh, let's, let's stop the share. Can you stop sharing? Yeah. <clears throat> and I'd love to just, you know, we don't, I don't have time for everyone, but I'd love to hear from a few brave souls. Yes, Nicholas. 
Hi there, Nancy. Thank you for an, an absorbing um, presentation. I loved every minute of it. And I loved, I loved your pedigree so much, I want to be your friend. <laughs> you, you spewed out some names there that are, are any inventor's dreams, and you've, been, you know, you've worked in those companies. But to get back to the reason I'm chatting to you now, so thanks for all that. My niche is gadgetry, um, fidget-type things. And would I be correct to say one of the important things in that is uh, challenge and mastery, because it's a challenge to uh, either use it and then to master it. That's kind of yeah. what I picked up at a big That's time. Great, great. And let me tell you this. I talk about fiddle factor. We, you know, like there's this counterbalance. Virtual <clears throat> doesn't use our body. Fiddle factor is like high touch is the counterbalance for high tech. So when you create things with fiddle factor, they become, you know, and, and a lot of trends, a lot of crazes in the kids space use fiddle factor. So I think all of us love that fiddle factor. So thank you, Nicholas. Someone else, please. Yes. Hillary. Um, Hi, Hillary. Hi, I, I came in late, apologies. But I did get in, in time to hear you talk about the gut. And it sort of resonated because although I'm not in this field, I do voluntary work for a charity. And um, it's not so much a formal pitch, but you do have to approach the public you're trying to sell something. And one of the things I've realized that if it's going to be from the gut, it can only be something you really, really believe in. Thank you, Hillary. Thank you. We have time for one more. Yes, Kenneth. Hi. Uh, my name's Ken. Barbie, how are you? <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't resist it. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's actually opened my eyes considerably, the emotional side of marketing and the, and the lesson you taught us today. I was really, I couldn't listen hard enough to pick up everything you were saying. It, it, it's so true. And I mean, I realized as you were going along how we all need to really take account of that when we're marketing our products. It, 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 obviously not always toys, but I mean, it, it's regardless of that, how do you get the customer to decide to buy it? How do you get the store to decide to stock it? You know, and, and it's, it, it's made me think an awful lot about the way I approach a store um, with a cold call. Uh, I'll, I'll have to revise my approach, I think, <laughs> and appeal to that emotional thing. Um, yeah, brilliant. Thank you very, very much. Hopefully that revised uh, approach will uh, yield much success. Um, so anyway, thank you, guys. I'm sorry um, uh, we don't have more time uh, this morning, but it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I love this topic, as you can tell. And uh, I've often said in the industry that I've been a part of for over 30 years. My favorite people in the industry are the inventors. Find out more about the Institute of Inventors and Innovators at the Triple I website, www.iii.org.za.